fooling about with it for a few months now. Very delicate. It's a, it's a bit of a departure from the kind of thing you normally play. Yeah, well, it's part of a, uh, a trilogy, really, a musical trilogy that I'm doing in D minor, which I always find is really the saddest of all keys, really. I don't know why, but it makes people weep instantly to play a... It's a horn part. It's very pretty. You know, just simple lines intertwining. You know, very much like I'm really influenced by Mozart and Bach, and it's sort of in between though. It's really, it's like a Mach piece, really. It's, what do you call this? Well, this piece is called uh, Lick My Love Pump. You've joined the Betamax Video Club, rewinding back to our favourite films of the 1980s. My name's Rich Nelson, and tonight I've rented This Is Spinal Tap. Watching it with me, I've got Radio Royalty. It's Claire Sturgis. <laughs> Hi, Claire. How are you? I like that. I'm really well. I don't know if I'm royalty. Oh, you are. Oh, I'll take it. I'll yes. have that. <laughs> Thank you. Now, this was a film that you really wanted to do. Yes. Now, you've met and interviewed some of the big names in rock music. Yeah. These three guys, David St. Hubbins, Nigel Tufnell, Derek Smalls, <laughs> are they anything like real life? Yes. Yeah. But and that's a terrible thing, isn't it? I've got to tell you, I don't. Have you heard this story about how um, when Aerosmith was sat down to watch this film? I don't know when they watched it. <laughs> um, apparently, Joe Perry got it immediately and thought it was the best thing he'd ever seen. Steve Tyler thought was so confused and, and quite sort of. But this is a terrible thing to laugh at. They're having a terrible time. They just <laughs> did not get it. So I think that sort of some people. Um, are very much like the musicians in Spinal Tap, and, and others aren't. And I have interviewed some people who, who take they take their art and their craft very seriously of course they do but they also take everything else very seriously and don't have a sense of humor about anything and this strange little bubble that they live in and it's not just rock or metal musicians i think a lot of musicians who live in this bubble of fame and celebrity especially in the 80s where you were able to be something that quite honestly you weren't because social media didn't exist and no one could could sort of prove otherwise um it was all down to your pr people so yeah that they they believed they were amazing and and they were i don't don't say lied to constantly but egos were stroked and um yeah i feel incredibly sorry for them but anyway that's another we'll get to that later <laughs> um we're introduced to the film by um the director Rob Reiner he's playing a character called Marty DeBerge uh, a fan of Spinal Tap and he's coined or used the word rockumentary which is something that gets used to death these days um, this film was made in 1984 um, again before YouTube and, and anything yeah. else but this was from the outside it's got reasonable production values to the point that you can almost see this being an actual film but the fact is it's very easy to spot you know these are american guys playing englishmen you say yeah. the thing is though you say it's easy to spot. we obviously find it easy to spot well but back in the day was it mm. i mean what i haven't done is look up some reviews from the time i'm assuming people who knew film reviewers knew mm. because christopher guest was was he known i'm assuming rob reiner i'm yeah. but i think a lot of people for quite a while maybe thought it was a documentary yeah. I don't know but I love the fact that it, it fooled a few people <laughs> it did um, and even I remember it, they popped up in a, an episode of The Simpsons in character as Spinal Tap um, and that was one of my sort of other introductions to them where yeah. this is 
a group of actors playing a role within a cartoon and it's quite easy to think it's very yeah yeah. it's it's very meta isn't it and of course (laughs) with Harry Shearer I've got to tell you a couple of weeks ago when did we have the terrible snow Um, about a month ago Um, it's roasting hot now but um, I was offered um, Harry Shearer but not Harry Shearer Derek Smalls in character because he's got this new album out Um, he looks like a a, a wizened old wizard now (laughs) and um, of course I accepted the the interview request but it it didn't happen in the end because snow stopped play unfortunately Um, but now I'm quite relieved because I think that would have terrified me interviewing Harry Shearer in character as Derek Smalls and I don't think he was going to break character and (laughs) I have to have at some point I have to be able to talk to Harry Shearer Mm. But apparently that wasn't going to happen. And I think I would have found that terrifying. That's devastating. Uh, it is devastating. Maybe it'll come back again. But, um, yeah, we, we just couldn't reschedule it. So, yeah, that would have been a great story <laughs> to include here. And the thing is, is that throughout the film, he's very much the sort of third wheel. He doesn't... He's always there. He's always... Mm. You know, he, he acts with his body language and his mm. face. He doesn't say a lot except when there are parts when he's interviewed alone and he comes across very pretentious. He's <laughs> the balance between fire and ice, as he describes <laughs> yeah. David and Nigel, which means that he is lukewarm water. <laughs> oh, I love it. He knows exactly oh. where he is, but um, yeah, it's almost like he, he enjoys being in the in their shadow on stage anyway. The, the film opens with them landing in New York, yeah. um, the start of their big American tour as they're launching their new album, um, opening with Tonight, I'm Gonna Rock New Tonight. Quite quickly, they we go backstage, we talk to them. They're, the three of them are together and they have a very storied history. They weren't a metal or a rock band, you know, going back, they were everything from blues folk to hippie. Yeah, um, yeah, they had history. Yeah, um, and even the beginning when they were the originals then they had to rename themselves the new originals. And even little things, you can imagine <laughs> arguments between band over who named what first and everything else. I suppose it's like the Seekers or the New Yeah, exactly, exactly <laughs> what I was thinking. But the, the, the attention to detail in that writing and the attention to detail in the back history of the band is, is just... The, one of the reasons why I, I picked this film for us to discuss in detail was because I think it's hard to think of anything else... I mean. Christopher Guest is clearly a genius and has mm. done other things, but this was before anything else yeah. of its kind, and his attention to detail, I think, is just incredible. I mean, you can look at when we sort of mention documentary and how many films and TV shows, even things like probably The Office, have kind well, of Ricky sport. has Ricky yeah. Gervais has been absolutely honest and said this is Spinal Tap influenced yeah. the way he wanted to um, do The Office, and of course he, he's now a friend of of them all Um, and very much influenced by by that Um, that fly on the wall no holds barred we see everything and we laugh at everything but even the little sort of set pieces and and there's a a running gag throughout the film about how there's the three sort of main characters and their ever rotating uh, roster of drummers (laughs) which has now gone on to be I mean everyone now takes the mickey out of drummers drummers never last um, you did a sort of programme about drummers. Yes, I did. A few yeah, months yes. Ago. Um, did none of them f- thankfully died in bizarre gardening incidents no, or anything no. like that? No, none of them exploded or uh, <laughs> um, met a, a, an untimely demise. No, um, and most of the drummers we spoke to were lovely, lovely people. There might have been a couple 
who, um, again, take it very seriously. And why shouldn't they? Because they're incredible musicians and they're the beating heart of, of the band. But a lot of them... <laughs> I die, hey. A lot of them can't laugh at themselves. And, and again, maybe that's just a personality trait. Yeah. I, I laugh at a lot of things. I like laughing at myself. Um, some people didn't want to laugh about it and I think would not want to laugh along with any Spinal Tap jokes. No. So um, so none of that was mentioned, funnily <laughs> enough. Um, but yeah, dr- drummers are, are always the butt of jokes, yeah. I think. There's the stereotype that drummers are, are usually a cross between Animal from the Muppets yeah. and so, someone who takes their art very seriously in a, a role that is essentially banging on a something. Um, yeah, you said that, yeah. not me. No. Nope. <laughs> you can come and find me if you, if you want to query that. I talked with another person about this and, and we always compared drummers with, say, goalkeepers in football in that right. they always say you have to be mad to be a goalkeeper. There is the image that the drummer is kind of the the more out there one because they have to use such physical energy on the Absolutely, stage. Absolutely, yeah. Um, and one of the jokes they mention in the film is that one of them spontaneously combusts on stage um, to the point where they try and defend it by saying, well, dozens of people explode every year and you don't hear about it. Um, it's just genius. It's genius. But then expending all that energy. Of course, that, of course that's going to happen, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> I, I can't account for the person who choked on vomit, which happened to be yeah, someone else. Yeah, someone else's. Oh, brilliant. Oh, I loved it. And of course, they couldn't tell who's because you can't dust for vomit. No, you can't. <laughs> so after this this little spiel at the beginning, we have the opening night party for their new album, uh, Smell the Glove, which is held in what looks like a hotel suite in um, New York. The sort of waiters at the hotel are actually mimes, which provides mm. some comedy in itself because one of the mimes is Dana Carvey, who was a Garth in Wayne's World. Oh my goodness, I didn't know that. Yeah, well spotted. He didn't have any speaking role, thankfully. But oh. the one mime who did speak was Billy Crystal, saying, uh, yeah. "Mime is money, my friend." <laughs> <laughs> I've been to a few parties like that. Oh God. I've been to some launch part. I mean, I've worked in radio f- for many, many years. Um, and any excuse back in the day especially in the 90s any excuse to have a party to launch an album yeah. there would be a party and there would be canapes and there would be mime artists or so- <laughs> someone interesting to deliver those canapes and there would be um, people from the record label are being very sycophantic to everyone and I, I, I hate myself saying that but there was a lot of um, everyone's darling darling <laughs> thank you darling do you love the album darling I haven't heard it I, you will love it darling and lots of that so yeah, I've been to quite a few. Of I those. can imagine the the mimes or the waiters handing out lots of demo tapes, just sort of sneaking along with their yeah, and things. Yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> the owner of the record label is uh, Patrick McNeil. Yes, Sir Dennis Eaton Hogg, which is <laughs> about the most English name you can imagine if you're writing something. And uh, Bobby Fleckman, who was uh, Fran Drescher, as the sort of um, she the A and R or A and R sort of marketing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, and their big argument was the fact that the album cover wasn't going to be stocked in the big uh, shops because it was sexist. And it says a lot that Nigel's reaction was, well, what's wrong with being sexy? Sexy, exactly. (laughs) Relics of an early age, even in the early 80s, I suppose. But this is 
part of the sort of recurring thing is that the tour is supposed to support the launch of this album which is goes progressively from bad to worse throughout the film the album we don't actually see it but it's supposed to be a woman all on all fours <laughs> with a dog leash yeah um and their point was oh well if we'd only made it with a man then there'd be an element of choice and it would have been okay yeah yeah i think again it's the, it's that 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 innocence of an age gone by where it's just like, well, clearly women don't mind that. No. You know, it is sexy. What's wrong with being sexy? <laughs> um, and I, I, I choose my words, Kevin, innocence, because I, I think they just don't know. They just no. don't know. And they don't mean it with any malice. Um, and a lot of the bad... I mean, I can't help comparing them sometimes to bands like Motley Crue or Hanoi Rocks yeah. back in the day. Um <laughs> Certainly, maybe not as innocent as as our Spinal Tap boys, but um, but yeah, there, there was there was no question. We want sexy ladies on on the front cover. What's what's wrong with that? Of course, they want to wear a bikini. Can't we have them topless? Okay, well, they can wear their bikini top then if they want to. And that's them being, you know, that's, that's sexy. It's very clever that they cut from the scene with the um, launch party to the next song at a next gig, which is uh, Big Bottom. Big yeah, <laughs> Big Bottom. Yeah. The lyrics of that are brilliant and yet... <laughs> Bri- yeah. Appalling, but yeah. yeah, we can all laugh with them. In- enjoying this. a girlfriend. It's, I suppose it's their version of um, I Like Big Butts. Yeah. yeah. It came across very well. And while this is going on, there, there's still the argument about the album and some of their previous albums. There was uh, Intravenous de Milo. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so clever. <laughs> um, and something that is more... I guess in keeping it was the gospel according to Spinal Tap which you can imagine isn't that far away from any album you'd see today and Shark Sandwich which doesn't seem anything wrong with that (laughs) (laughs) we also get a cameo from uh, Bruno Kirby he's the chauffeur driver um, when he's driving them along and um, I suppose he's what you imagine a typical New Yorker to be he's a trying to talk to them about Frank Sinatra yeah he's got a story he's uh, got a story to share they all have a story about Frank yeah doesn't like it when uh, they close the partition in the limo on him no you can't you can't be rude to the limo driver never be rude to your limo driver they are eyes and ears <laughs> they will sort you out unfortunately he, this doesn't come back to bite them on well, with him anyway but that would have been a really good story arc yeah. actually yeah um, so he he must know uh, Rob Reiner cause sorry he, that was my iPad <laughs> Yeah, te- technology. Technology, yeah. yeah. So you didn't, didn't get this in Spinal Tap, did No. <laughs> um, yeah, because he popped up in the, when Harry met Sally. He was um, Billy Crystal's friend in that, wasn't he? Um, yes, yeah. oh God, yes. The, uh, one of the things about the um, the album launch as well, and I didn't realise, and, and maybe it's I, I've not spent a lot of time around musicians, was for some reason they all had cold sores. I noticed while they were doing this. Yeah, I mean, I mean my <laughs> my assumption was a little, you know, the herpes virus was running riot through yeah. the band, you know, Sh- sharing something. Yeah, anyway. sharing sharing something <laughs> or someone. Oh, gross. Oh. oh, 
Oh. Yeah. L- luckily, that wasn't caught on film. Yeah. One of um, one of the next sort of interviews between uh, David, Nigel, and Marty was in what looked like a chip shop in New York, and they were singing, and it was very sort of good little harmony. You know, these aren't musicians, but um, they were singing all the way home. Oh, their, one of their, their old hits, song. yes, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and saying that they have armadillos in their trousers, not quite cod pieces. <laughs> <laughs> then it cuts to them at their next gig, and and I. I guess this was on their rider or something where Nigel is moaning about the size of the bread yes. that comes on the tray. Yeah. Now this must be exactly what you imagine them to a rock or any musician, or even a Mariah Carey or something, to focus on the fact that the bread for the sandwich isn't the same size as the meat. I think that's incredibly well observed, and I, and I think when again going back to living in this 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 music bubble, this mm. rock bubble as they live in. And it's, I say, it's not just rock bands, but when that's all you can focus on, there's so much going on. I, I think sometimes they have to shut everything down and all they can focus on is, is like, I don't like the food. Although he did say, I'm, I'm joking, I'm joking. But yeah. I think he, he was, as the character, he was serious. It just doesn't fit the way I want my sandwich to fit. And these olives, there's things in this olive, but not in this olive. And I can't deal with it. I can't fold the meat and then fold the bread. Yes, <laughs> it's all about folding it. And the manager, um, Ian the manager, who will do anything he can mm. just to make his band happy and just to get them to perform and just get them to try and sell some records and uh, with his cricket bat <laughs> that he uses to smash things up. He will do anything mm. for his boys. He, he's loyal. He, yeah. Definitely, yeah. Um, I, I mean, this reminded me of something, again, going back to Wayne's World, where one of the stories was they had this legendary roadie who told the story about how they were doing a gig in Sri Lanka and Ozzy wouldn't go on stage because of the brown, he didn't have any brown M&Ms. Uh, yes, of course. Um, yeah. yeah. And this is the sort of thing that you imagine they get sort of completely focused on one thing. And, Absolutely, because yeah. that's all you can focus on. I um admittedly inspired by that story, which I think is hilarious, on the last, was it the last royal wedding or the last, I think the Queen's birthday, I think it might mean the last royal wedding, there was a street party where my brother works and they asked me to host the street party. Yeah. I said I'd do it for a big, huge bowl of M&Ms but no brown ones. <laughs> and they actually did give me a big bowl oh. of M&Ms no brown ones. Well, the, the street parties that are coming up and, and again, to, to put a nice little time frame on this, this is the week of... Harry and Meghan's wedding. Yes. Assuming it goes ahead. Yes. Um, <gasps> what are you trying to say, Rich? <laughs> well, we'll look back and see whether the dad turned up. Or yeah. Oh, well, that's a whole other. I hope he does. But anyway, yes. Yeah, well, they'll probably other. get one of the page boys to separate his M&Ms for him to turn yeah. up. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. After that gig, this is one of the legendary scenes where Nigel is showing off his guitar collection. Oh, he's got some good guitars in there. Yeah, okay. Let's, you know, let's not. He's got some good stuff in there, but um, yeah, don't touch it. No, I, I mean this because one of the guitars in particular still got the tag on it. He said, "Don't touch it. Don't even look at it." Don't, yeah, don't yeah. even look at it. Yeah. And and again, this is like one of those things where he pays more money than sense. But then, to someone who's not in the industry or anything, this is to him they are prized possessions. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, that even if he's not going to play them, they represent something or yeah. whatever. I mean, I assume the one that with the price tag wasn't previously owned by someone. But then that's yeah. that's all he's got. That's his life. Yeah. That's the, the sadness again of th- th- this is what's what it's come down to. He's a man with lots of money, but it's just his guitars. Of course, the sustain on the guitar was fantastic. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> Listen to that. I can't hear anything. No. Well, but you, you can you, when you 
plug it in. You would if it was playing. <laughs> <laughs> and the amp. Yeah. Yes. You see, that joke has just gone on and on and on. Even now I find myself referring to it. Yeah. Of course it's loud. We go up to 11. I mean, it's just... Thank you for the T-shirt, by the way. I now have a T-shirt with that amp on it, and yeah. it goes all the way to 11. <laughs> Super loud. And his logic, which on sort of close inspection, it, it does make sense when he says, well, it's one louder. But when Marty says, why don't you make 10 louder? Just make 10 louder. Yeah. He said, but this goes up to 11. Yeah. No, you've seen Don't enough of that it. one. This is a top to uh, you know what we use on stage, but it's very, very special because if you can see, yeah. the numbers all go to 11. Look, right across the board. Oh. 11, oh, 11, and most 11, of the amps go up to 10. Exactly. Does that mean it's louder? Is it any louder? Well, it's one louder, isn't it? It's not 10. You see, most most blokes are going to be playing at 10. You're on 10 here, all the way up, all the way up, yeah. all the way up. You're on 10 on your guitar. Where mm. can you go from there? Where? I don't know. Nowhere, exactly. What we do is if we need that extra push over the cliff, you know what we do? Uh, put it up to 11. 11, exactly. One louder. Why don't you just make 10 louder and make 10 be the top number and make that a little louder? These go to 11. We'll leave it there then. <laughs> and, and this is like having, a, having a conversation with a child. There it is. Yeah. It is. Because it again, is like a child. He, to him, that is, you know, maybe whatever his background is, to make something one louder. And, and he was earlier billed as being in the loudest rock band in Britain. It's one louder. That's all he needs. Doesn't matter what. Yeah, one Doesn't, louder, which means therefore we are better. Yeah. And that's all he needs to know. Nothing about decibels or anything else. No. Just one no. louder. <laughs> <laughs> and something you mentioned briefly earlier um, we have a little interview with um, Ian in his office which is a very yeah. good panel it's, yeah. um, and he's, he spends most of the time talking about his cricket bat yeah. saying it'll come in, it's coming useful yeah. to a clip to a montage of him basically battering things with it can you imagine though the stress the, <laughs> the relief of just smashing things up with that cricket bat here's a man who again as we mentioned, is trying to make sure the sandwiches are at the right size, mm. or trying to understand, trying to explain to the, the guys why. Um, now you you can't have smell the glove. You can't have that. You know. Have we, have we got to the the black album cover yet? We'll oh, get to that funny, later. Yeah. yeah. He's a man under a lot of stress, and uh, yeah, I, I thoroughly approve of that cricket bat. <laughs> he has one of those faces that just looks exasperated. Yeah. <laughs> He's having to manage the expectations of musicians who live in their bubble and have yeah. their own sort of issues going on. He is also essentially fending off a coup from David's yes. partner. Yes. Yeah. And, and again, I'm, I'm assuming again we, we have slight, um, in, say, looking at how Yoko Ono was perceived mm. coming into the Beatles, and yeah. not that she came in to manage them, but certainly anything that um, upsets the status quo of a band be it a girlfriend or a wife coming in with ideas, talking about how maybe things should be done, or bringing um, ideas for yogic breathing or uh, <laughs> a certain food stuffs that they yeah. should try to eat, you know, was didn't go down well. <laughs> and while they're in the hotel, sort of, uh, in between gigs, they're in Memphis and they find out the gig's been cancelled. The band are sitting in the hotel, chilling out. One of their old songs comes on the radio. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and um, That's cruel. Yeah, this is where... <laughs> One of their older songs, it was um, the the Flower People one, I think it was, came on the radio, oh, come in here, yeah, they're playing your old song. And, of course, the DJ at the end 
Oh, yeah. tragic. <laughs> now, um, I'm sure any time, diff- you, you never know exactly where a band's going to be. Um, you've never been caught out like that, have you? No, no, but... but it's one of those scenes that, that I think the story there, of course, you know, they are a British band and clearly their new album isn't doing as well as, mm. as it was. Um, but they clearly had great success as this slightly, mm. if you envisage, so I think the Beatles sort of ran about Sergeant Pepper era. Mm. That's what they looked like, didn't they? Yeah. Um, and that obviously was a huge hit. And he came out and said, where are they now? It's like, <laughs> We're listening to you, <laughs> waiting for our tour to kick off again. But, yeah. but and again... I get very emotionally involved with these films. You know, I just feel devastated for them because it must be awful when you've had that that huge success yeah. and you, you're continue, you're on the road. You know, you, you're, you've got a new album coming out. Things aren't going your way, but you're still at it and you, you still believe in your fans. And yet, it's just not going right. You just, I yeah. feel a little bit sick for them. But the, to them as well, I guess they're they're still in that bubble. But they don't see yeah. it. So 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 hearing that DJ say, mm. "Where are they now?" I think you can tell by the looks on their faces that they it does not compute. Well, no. what, what do you mean? <laughs> We're still big. We're, We're still, still here. Yeah. yeah. And this is where, I suppose, in, in their bubble, they're shielded from album sales and ticket sales at concerts yeah. because there were comments between Marty and Ian about how they've gone from selling out 15,000-seat uh, 15, arenas yeah. to not selling 1,200-seat ones. Yeah. And this is where they get they turn up in the cities. This is... Back, it still happens where you'll turn up in a place and go, Yeah, gigs cancelled, we haven't sold enough tickets. And yeah. They're in Memphis, and this is where they're like, Right, a gig's been cancelled, and end up doing a little bit of sightseeing and go to Graceland. <laughs> <laughs> and the three of them stand over Elvis's tomb and end up getting in, well, certainly not an argument, but it's, yeah, uh, yeah, it's it's again that they're trying to. Uh, they're trying to sing Heartbreak Hotel harmonise yeah and when they can't get in tune that's when you can see the cracks between them yeah and the weird thing is is that I guess again not being a musician that's something that would be almost a tribute in in their own way of you know they're at Elvis's grave and everything else it it doesn't take a lot to see there's issues going on here Mm. they're not bad singers though no they're not at all and in fact I think they and again they're great musicians, yeah. uh, but they, they have a manager who is doing his best to protect them. Maybe he should have been more honest with them yeah. earlier on. <laughs> but saying, no, no, we're, now, we're focusing more on, on, on smaller audiences. You yeah. know, we're really focusing on, on our fans and, you know, we want to, it to be a far more intimate uh, scenario. Yeah. yeah, no, you're just not selling. <laughs> you're just not selling. And even then it came out that they would, um, that most of the demographic of their fans are sort of young men. Yes. It's, yes, um, and they're like, "What?" <laughs> <laughs> it's um, they have these images of being sort of huge sex gods and everything else, but um, most of the people who turn up are sort of young guys who yeah. either they look and say, "That's where I want to be," or that's the music they grew up listening to. And that time when they were in the the hotel reception, where uh, they hear these girls scream and they go, "Oh, well, hang on, here they come!" and they just run straight past them to the the next up and coming young rock yeah. god that's standing behind them, who's about to sell sell out the Enormo Dome in town. <laughs> Um, it's uh, death by a thousand cuts. All these little things yes. seem to just mount up. Yes. And they get to um, Wisconsin, and this is where uh, David's girlfriend, Janine, turns up. Yes. Janine, who's into astrology and everything else. Yeah. And this is when the cover for, or the new cover for Smell the Glove comes out. 
it's black. Yeah. All black. All black. You can't get any blacker. Of course, the irony is a few years later, that's exactly what Metallica did. But yeah. of course, with Metallica, it's well cool. Um, yeah, all black. And even then, they were sort of saying, is, is this the first pressing? Why are you showing us this? <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, it was, a, it was a bold move, I suppose. Uh, I guess if it was going to be in a Walmart or Kmart, as they were saying earlier on, that might cause some confusion. But um, this was their sort of response to being told they were too sexist mm. and let's have nothing, not not even the name of the band. The next gig was one of the ones I laughed at the most, where Derek gets stuck. Stuck in his pod. Yes. Um, the three alien pods on stage during uh, its rock and roll creation. Right, yeah, that's it. Um, yeah. David and Nigel step out, rock the place. Uh, Derek is stuck and the whole song, a poor roadie, is spent trying to free him. He's literally got an uh, like an, an angle grinder, hasn't yeah. he, towards the end, trying He's to... Got, uh, uh, yeah, I've got a hammer, blowtorch, angle grinder. Oh, right, okay, yeah. <laughs> And just as David and Nigel finish the song by stepping back in, he's freed, tries to then climb in, and gets his arm stuck. Yeah, it's great. I mean, yet, yet again, things like that, in it's sort of the 80s, these, these big metal band shows, you know, they would use these incredible props. Yeah. And the things like that would happen. Things do go wrong. But it was brilliantly handled. And, and again, I, and again... <laughs> I get so emotionally involved. I just felt sorry for, for poor Derek Smalls. <laughs> His moment had gone, yeah. had passed. Maybe he got a bit more limelight from that, just being... Yeah, you know, maybe he did. It's one of those things yeah. that would have gone viral. Yeah, it would have done, yeah. <laughs> Millions of views on that. Oh, no. Poor boy. And after this, we have the um, the very touching musical trilogy in D minor. It's a mark piece because it's a hybrid of Mozart and Bach. The saddest of all keys. Yes, the saddest of all keys, yeah. uh, Nigel plays his new piece. I can't imagine Bach or Mozart having any work that would be described as lick my love pump. Yeah. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> I love the fact that there might be some people listening now for for whatever reason are listening to this having not watched this is Spinal Tap. No. I I hope we're selling it to you. <laughs> yeah, we've got 11 and lick my love pump. Yeah. And but the music itself it's so is really beautiful and poignant. Yeah. And, it's, and again, he's a great musician yeah. in this, yeah. Because he plays it and he just looks so involved. Yeah. And it's only right at the end. What's it called? This piece is called Lit My Love Pump. I suppose that would be for maybe a, a concept album. Or yeah, a, definitely. A solo yeah. piece. But again, this is just him in his, his own little sort of home studio playing this away where he's happiest it, it truly is his bubble and that again that's another goes to show how when you're in a band when you're living this kind of life you you have to have something else otherwise it will drive you insane and you will spend your life complaining about the sandwiches um and the olives with things in the middle um so this is i think the point of this in the film is showing that you know he's a great musician and um he has to have something else to do. Sadly, not quite hitting it with Lick My Love Pump, but, you know, <laughs> and again, I feel desperately sorry for yeah. him. Because we don't see anything about um, sort of his, if he's got family. No, or, or girlfriends no. Or, or anything, yeah. Because yeah. um, Janine is starting to become a more familiar sight on, yeah. on the tour. And yet he, this is him, he's, his interviews, his solo interviews are with Marty. 
in his private area doing mm. doing this. Um, so of course it, it's his escape, mm. um, and we see even less of Derek and his antics. But the um, the next scene is the airport. Yes. Yeah, and again, if I'm sure if you did get to interview him and you'd gone somewhere with a metal detector. Yeah, <laughs> I know. Um, <laughs> it's something that it's again one of those that. I think it's a gag that seems a lot of people seem to know whether they know where it comes from or not. I don't know. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I think that's exactly it. Um, because invariably, and, and whether it's just a juvenile male thing or something, they'll go for a metal detector or have a one of the portable ones, and will make the yeah. <laughs> and it's always that noise, yeah. isn't it? And of course, the poor airport <laughs> transport security <laughs> officer. Is <laughs> it? Have you got any keys, any metal objects, any prosthetic limbs? <laughs> <laughs> and as he takes out, as he kind of, oh, yeah, completely forgot the courgette wrapped in tinfoil. Um, there's quite a lot of laughter in the background. And I'm not 100% sure whether that's the band and the, the roadies and that, or is it actually on the set? I I love, I would love to think, and, and I think maybe... It- uh, maybe some of this film was was filmed this way, um, and I know that Ricky, sorry to name drop Ricky, but Ricky Gervais with The Office, a lot of things he wouldn't tell the cast and crew about. He would just sort of stick it in and yeah. just hope, and sometimes it worked. So I think a lot of the cast and crew did not know what was coming. I think maybe they thought that there was something there, but yeah. didn't know what it actually was. So I, I think a lot of that was genuine laughter yeah. from the crew as well as the cast. I'd like to think this was one of the, in an alternate film that would be an outtake or something. Abs- this, yeah, they say, no, keep it. I'll have that, yeah. <laughs> so I wonder if Ricky did that with his dance in the office. But, uh, <laughs> well, do you know what? I, I don't know for sure, but it wouldn't surprise me as if yeah. they would say, right, Ricky's just going to do a dance now. And yeah, because the, the looks on their faces <laughs> was priceless. Oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> now... After this, and this is well and truly into the supposed decline of Spinal yeah. Tap, we get to um, Holiday Inn, the home of Spinal Tap, and there, Artie Fufkin, who's the Polymer Records sort of representative, uh, signs them up for an autograph session of Smell the Glove. No one turns up. Oh, God, that's just terrible, isn't it? I mean, no one turns up. We're in central London recording this, and I've seen things and, and walk past people queuing outside the Waterstones in Piccadilly to, to go have anything signed by people I've never heard of anyway. Well, the YouTubers, yeah. Rich, it's the YouTubers. Oof. Literally round the block we see them. Yeah, it's incredible. They, they can even write. Yeah. Um, no, they can. Yeah. And they're very rich. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. And yet they, they're sitting in a record store and of course it's the usual, oh, well, we must have got the time wrong or yeah. this, that and the other. Artie Fufkin turns up and he's almost trying to, he's clearly a huge fan of the band. Yeah. And this is his dream gig. He's obviously a regional person for the record company thinking, my God, Spinal Tapper in my backyard, I've got to be yeah. the ultimate, yeah. do everything for him. And of course it goes horribly wrong, so uh, starts inviting them to kick his ass. The fact that he just he just wants to take the blame. He wants yeah. to take the hurt away from the band because obviously he must be devastated mm. for himself, but also for the band that he yeah. adores. And he wants to try and try and defuse that situation. Yeah, it doesn't work. Yeah, because the the scene where he walks into their hotel room and Derek's there with two sort of attractive young yeah. girls and every, his eyes light up, thinking, oh "My God, this is the rock and roll lifestyle guy." Yeah, <laughs> it's his one chance. Yeah, but he's even. I mean, he's even turning up wearing the t-shirt, which. <laughs> So it gives it away. You don't, don't try and play it cool or anything yeah, like that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and this is in Ohio, in Cleveland, where 
they're at a gig and when they're announced on stage it's this is spinal tap they get lost the, backstage classic <laughs> and again backstage i was gonna say backstage passages that sounds so rude <laughs> but backstage is it, it can be a nightmare yeah. and I love the fact they picked up on that and I don't know where they end up it's like hello Cleveland I have no idea where we are <laughs> and um, round in circles and the fact they have to answer, ask the maintenance man for the maintenance guy yeah who sends them off yeah it's round here and do a left and then they meet him again <laughs> and it's oh you must have taken the wrong turn it's, it's just that thing I suppose would they hope for just one red carpet straight out I don't know yeah but. that would be nice but maybe not when you're on the way down Sadly, yes. Spinal Tap. The venues get smaller. Yeah. After this, um, Janine has started doing more. She's going in a creative direction. She's come up with some uh, designs for a new look for the band based on some drawings. They're actually quite good, but maybe not in keeping. Um, this is where Stonehenge yes. pops up. Um, now, one of the band's songs is Stonehenge and it's a very druid heavy piece that you can imagine but Nigel suggests why don't we have a huge uh, it's a megalith isn't it of one of the Stonehenge pieces draw does the dangerous thing of drawing a plan on a napkin and I guess with measurements yeah (laughs) and the measurements because he does them and I guess because I've seen the film enough times to kind of but if you're watching it for the first time, you would you might not twig. Absolutely, um, of course not. Writing 18 inches instead of 18 feet, it's the difference between. It's one. Li- it's a, one a, little tick yeah. of a of a of a yeah. pencil, isn't it? Ian says, "Right, I'll sort it out." Yeah, consider, give it to me. Consider <laughs> it done. I will sort it. It's all done. Don't worry about it. Takes it away. Yes. And then the inevitable happens. Oh yes, because um, while they're playing and the gig. No. They're very serious. They take they, they come on stage. They're in the woods, speaking very much as though if they were at Stonehenge themselves. Like something Marillion would have done back yeah, in the day. Yeah, very very in keeping. Yeah, just the faces because they're expecting a huge eighteen foot Stonehenge, pretty much life size to yeah. to drop down. Yeah, drop down behind them, being winched on stage. And it's I think it's David's face first as he turns around and sees an eighteen inch. Stonehenge being lowered onto the floor and being danced around by dwarves. <laughs> I can't remember who suggested the dwarves. Who? What? Where did that come from? I'm not sure. Yeah, but... because suddenly it's like who but them? Oh. <laughs> and of course, these dwarves who look like they're more dressed like leprechauns. Yes. Yeah. Jaunting around this tiny little yeah. statue. And even afterwards, when they're complaining about um, the set, and they, there's lots of puns in there about you're making a big thing about it and everything else. I do not, for one, think that the problem was that the band was down. I think that the problem may have been that there was a Stonehenge monument on the stage that was in danger of being crushed by a dwarf. All right? That tended to understate the hugeness of the object. I really think you're just making a much too big a thing out of it. Making a big thing out of it would have been a good idea. It's crazy because it's one simple error that gets taken without any fact checking. It's um, yeah. and I su- suppose it's and that happens. It does happen. It's the creative process. Yeah. Because what's to say that these guys didn't actually mean to have it as eighteen inches? Exactly. Exactly. This is the part afterwards where they're moaning about Stonehenge and uh, the band are saying to Ian that he should have he, yeah. managed. He should have known. Yeah. 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 Um, and Janine. 
Uh, well, David nominates Janine to be a sort of not a co-manager as such, but to help him out, which is code for get out. Mm. Um, this is where the coup starts, and he says she dresses like an Australian nightmare. <laughs> I might have to try that I one. Forgot that. <laughs> she gives them um, whole charts of um, this is your star sign. So they get their their astrology chart, yeah. don't they? Yeah. Yeah, this which is doesn't how the band impress. going to go. It's yeah. Yeah. Nigel, being ever the professional, sort of takes it while he's reading in his oversized cowboy hat, just sort of just ignoring it. Yeah. Sort of playing lip service. This is kind of the beginning of the end now because as Janine takes charge. The next gig is at the Air Force Base. Oh, yes. 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 Um, Fred Willard pops up. He's been in all sorts, Anchorman, and as my wife spotted him from Modern Family. Oh. He, yeah, he's uh, Phil Phil Dunphy's dad. Oh, God, yeah. of course, yes. He's been in Well spotted, Rich's yeah. wife. Yeah. And even little jokes where, because he's a military man, he jokes about the um, their haircuts. He says, oh, starting to get a bit shaggy at the back myself, and he's got a perfect yeah. military do. And then the conversation about the 24-hour clock, which, to be honest, throws a lot of people nowadays. Exactly. Yeah, exactly, yeah. yeah. That, that's. Yeah, I'll go with that. Yeah. <laughs> so come back in 30 hours. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and he's very nice. I suppose it's an Air Force base that doesn't see a lot of action. He asks for a slow song where... So that they, everyone can get up and dance. Um, so of course they play Sex Farm. <laughs> it's just—it's. I suppose it meets the criteria. It's a slowish song, and Nigel smashes his guitar and storms off, in keeping with pretty much every band I've ever seen. Yeah, He's one of them will predates, I suppose, an Oasis or something yes, similar. Yeah, definitely. Because earlier that um, they were saying about how David and Nigel bicker like brothers, Gallagher-esque tantrum. That he stormed off. And again, again with the writing that it's so well observed, and and it's it's quite funny watching this again after all these years. And you think bands haven't learned anything; they're still behaving like this. And that's and I think bands will continue to behave like yeah. this. So it's almost like it's as a rite of passage. You go through the, the spinal tap process yeah. um, to discover, you know, what's really important. Um, it's almost a user manual for any band. I think so, yeah. definitely. If you're starting a new band or even if you're you're in a band and you're doing well, it's almost like these are the hurdles you have to cross at some point in your career. You'll, you might have big success. You'll probably have gigs playing to one man and a dog in his pub. Yeah, yeah. Everything in between. And I think mo- most people will have their Stonehenge moment where yeah. at some point, somewhere <laughs> along the line, there's something was not quite understood yeah. and um, but you let them get on with it because that's what they do um, so yeah yeah and the, the personnel change in particular the drummers but yeah <laughs> well exactly yeah just ask Oasis about that yeah exactly <laughs> their next gig is at a festival and they share billing with a puppet show yeah, yeah. the mighty have fallen yeah <laughs> and they decide to go in a different direction now for them, this isn't a big thing because they've come from their previous yeah. incarnations. They decide to go in Derek's... This is where Derek sort of pipes up and say, let's do it as a free-form jazz odyssey. So suddenly, Derek yeah. is, is getting you know getting his say in, yeah. in the musical, how they're going to go forward musically. And, um, and again, let's not forget, you know, they're all great musicians. Yeah. So to him, it makes perfect sense. Why don't we try something else? And this is where perhaps he... He steps up, the band's at its lowest ebb, and he starts playing the jazz. 
he looks so comfortable. <laughs> he does. <laughs> he's jamming away. He just looks like this is what he should have been doing for 20 years. I'm not sure if he's still wearing football shirts and he looks so comfortable. It doesn't last very long mm. because the tour's ended in Los Angeles. They have their end of tour party, which looks so depressing. Yeah. It's, it's a grey overcast day on a hotel rooftop with a swimming pool. Yeah. You'd imagine in, in an alternate universe when the tour had gone well and albums had sold, it'd be full of Playboy models. Beautiful Playboy people. models, lots of very rich people that they don't know. Um, hangers-on are plenty. Um, loads of waiters, mime artists, whatever, <laughs> walking around with champagne and, and canapes. Yeah. And lots of people being pushed into the water. Yeah, a yeah. fun japes are plenty. And this is just lots of sort of well, we none were, of that. Yeah, we we made it. It's um, Derek and David at the end, sort of reminiscing and and everything else because they still keep touring afterwards. Um, they're still playing gigs, um, but it turns out that in their absence, Sex Farm seems to have become a huge hit in Japan. <laughs> <laughs> and again. This happens yeah. a lot. One song that might have been an album track or something yes. has gone, well, say global, but it's done so well in a country, in a different market. And fair play, they forgive the pun, they tap into that. Yeah. And Nigel joins them on stage, and this is it. Ian's back, the manager, with his cricket bat. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and so the music then brings them together, mm. because finally they're, they're doing something that they want to do. Yeah. Um, something has happened that they didn't try and force on anyone and hopefully off they go to be not quite as famous as they used to be but yeah. maybe continuing to do what they want it's one of those things that i think a lot of bands even if a, if it's a spinal tap they'd love to say they're big in japan yeah yeah and the fact and if you are big in japan that's pretty lucrative huge. yeah and the fact that you know nigel quits to them playing sex farm yeah. he's back on stage in kobe doing sex farm the circle's complete yeah i mean we're, we're kind of at the end of the film now and we've got a couple of sort of talking heads we've got derek saying about how he feels like a preserved moose on the <laughs> stage <laughs> which in his own little way just sort of it's an insight into his mind i don't really get what it means yeah other than, yeah and nigel talking about his t-shirt and going into far too much detail about his very famous T-shirt, which is black with the luminous green rib cage. Oh, yes. Yeah. It's an exact replica of his rib cage. Yes. I think he actually says, well, it's green. Yeah, well, my rib cage is green because look at my arm. My blood is blue. <laughs> and when it's pointed out, when well, no, that's a vein, he sort of just can't take it. Yeah, just like he doesn't understand going up to 11. We're yeah. one louder. Just doesn't get it. <laughs> I mean, this film on so many levels it's it, it's made so many inroads into popular culture and and even looking back at it as a fan of, of music and, and film it's gone everywhere is there any sort of band in the current climate you think would have the potential to be oh, a spinal tap i don't I, i'm very intrigued about what arctic monkeys are doing at the moment mm. i adore arctic monkeys this new album is is quite a departure to what they've done previously and i think it's very much um Alex doing what he needs to do and, and I'm assuming of course the, the rest of the band yeah. I'm sort of a bit out of my depth here because I'm, I'm not quite sure what's going on <laughs> but again I, I get the feeling that this is a band who take it very seriously but what But what if the fans hate it yeah. I don't think that is going to be the case I think the fans are going to go with it it's, it's a bit tricky to play on radio 
but you could you could see how a band could slip down that route of of um not quite believing that they're they're not as successful as they thought they were so yeah maybe that's unfair maybe i shouldn't say arctic monkeys but you can see how (laughs) that happens i guess it's easy to see from the outside that a musician or a band can change direction musically and then the fans aren't always gonna keep up it's hard isn't it because when you're a musician an incredible talent to have you know you're you're you move, you go with the times, you you have different influences. What you were singing about when you were in your late teens is very different to your late twenties. Um, so you are going to evolve yeah. and hope the fans go with you. That's not always the case, <laughs> but quite often it can be the case. You yeah. just never know. Um, but you have to. I, I think it's the element. What we love about sp- um, Spinal Tap is the fact that they just they have no idea. They 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 have no idea who their fans are, as as we see. <laughs> they don't even know who their fans are. They live in their bubble. They believe everything uh, they are told by their manager who's just desperately trying to protect them. And again, sexist? No, we're sexy. <laughs> and they, there you have it. So uh, yes. I, I think these days people are a lot more aware, but that's just the way we are. I, I like to think that maybe uh, This Is Spinal Tap has educated certainly people who work in the music industry about how to behave around bands. Yeah. <laughs> I think, you know, looking from another point of view where you see a band like The Darkness almost looking at that and thinking right what can we do in our songs to almost you know with their, their Christmas song yeah absolutely you know, that that was very much if if you look at it between the lines that was very risque yeah it almost made it to Christmas number one yeah they they knew to, exactly what they were yeah. doing though yeah and they seem to be trading on that and, and you hope that you know, it's almost like if you point out a joke or a magic trick, you don't really know, want to know how it happens. Um, yeah, of course not. And you hope that there is still a lot of scope for bands to to emerge that have this bubble where telling them no or telling them the truth, it's not going to work. Uh, and I think some and, and a massive departure when we talked about Mariah Carey earlier on, mm. she almost seems now to have adopted that persona and that she's almost owning the fact that yes i'm ridiculous and that's me yeah i'm assuming that mariah carey is self-aware that self-aware but i think there is also an element and again i have no evidence to prove this but i think there is also an element where again the the people keep her in this i keep using this bubble phrase (laughs) but i keep her in in this bubble and and massage the ego just because you know she's a valuable she's a valuable musician to have she's an asset to her music company. she is and i and i wonder how much a uh, moving away from the music industry how much for example the kardashians are mm. sort of like the the reality tv version of this is spinal <laughs> tap i think that's and yeah, again yeah. we we could and i think people do only today kim kardashian i think i think it was kim kardashian was was on social media advertising a lollipop that <laughs> uh, appetite suppressant lollipop yeah you think really <laughs> And I, I could, you know, could see Mary, maybe Derek Smalls doing something similar with, yeah. you know, he, he would be encouraged to promote something that, I don't know. I, I just think, you know, This Is Spinal Tap, I think, is alive and kicking in other areas. Yeah. I think the Kardashians. I think are, you've hit the nail on the head yeah. there. I think that the fact that how much Kim Kardashian was known other than probably having a picture taken with Absolutely, a yeah. Um, but still, their their mother is kind of the 
say the brains behind oh, the certainly yeah. yeah she pulls a lot of the strings in terms of yeah. directions and you know trying to own the bad behavior trying to in, in the way that Ian does I can't imagine she's got a cricket bat no but, um, but I, yeah, I'd love yeah. to know what uh, she does to get rid of that <laughs> oh, oh, feeling yeah You're having to put up with a lot of that stuff yeah <laughs> Well, on that bombshell, Claire, you're on Absolute Radio. Yes. Tell us, what can we expect from you on the air? So I do um, the 80s show on a Friday, obviously, mm-hmm. and uh, I'll have to mention this podcast, obviously. And I love that 80s show. I also do the classic rock party on a Saturday night and the request show on a Sunday. Um, and I love all the shows. But, but the 80s show, there's so, still so much love, and it's not about guilty pleasures. I refuse to say that 80 songs are guilty pleasures. Yeah. There's what I love about the decade... Um, and I also love the 90s as well. Um, but the 80s, so much happened in the 80s. There were so much, so many new and exciting things. Music, the genres that were coming out of the 80s were incredible. And you could like, you could like it all from Duran Duran to, to the hair metal. <laughs> there was something for everyone. And just going back to the films, what you're highlighting with this mm. podcast, the filmmaking in the 80s, we will never see the like of again. The creativity, the direct, what the directors were allowed to do with money that was huge amounts of money that was given to them by um, the film companies. So whether or not we're talking a, a fake documentary or rockumentary, I would have loved to have been a fly on the one they were trying to sell that to the film company. Yeah. It's not a documentary, but you're going to think it's a documentary. Right, so what is it then? Yeah. Well, it's not real, but it's a documentary. I would love to have seen that. From all of that to, and I know you, you've already discussed things, things like Beetlejuice yeah. and um, and Big, which was recently. I mean, just incredible films. That I don't think will ever be released like that again. And I think children growing up now, who were what, the age I was in the eighties, the Marvel universe is incredibly exciting, but it, but it's not creatively challenging in any way, or makes you think about things in a, a different way it's just you're just amazed at the sheer thrill of the action and the cgi but I, I, again there's a lot of innocence naivety discovering things and i love that about 80s movies the way that the 80s movies and the music kind of go together oh we, absolutely almost every film we've covered talk about the soundtrack yeah whether it's an original score whether yeah. it's a collection of pieces i mean this movie is a, a different beast entirely yeah you know even looking at things where today you look at the, the movies that come out and they are either the massive the avengers films the mm. transformers mm. the ones that give you huge headaches when you go and mm. see them or the very small ones and it's difficult to see how the two kind of prop each other up whereas it sounds awful but, but back in the 80s you remember that oh that's the song from so, so back to the future soundtrack yeah. you know pretty in pink mm. uh, the breakfast club i mean just these films like you say they were as one you had the yeah. film and the soundtrack and you just knew you you'll see a still from the film and you will hear the soundtrack or you will hear the soundtrack and you will see the film in your head they would they were just one and one and the same and and you yeah. just don't get that now and i'm not one of those people who oh, i was not like it used to be because you know <laughs> I still love a lot of what's happening now, but we will never have... I don't think younger people now, in their teens, will ever have that experience at the movies that we had. No. Um, I mean, we, I'd fun recently recorded an, an episode of this about Dirty Dancing. Right, And yeah. when you break down past the obvious romance, there's a film in there about 
illegal abortions and absolutely yeah class and absolutely race. so many different yeah. layers and you and and again as i think people have said to you on this mm. when you go back and watch it as a grown-up mm. you see a completely different film yeah. you see characters who you loved at the time thinking oh my god that's a terrible character or characters you didn't like you think no they were just totally misunderstood and yeah. and again so many layers to these films and, and you think as well with the, the way that international markets work and yeah you think like a lot of the films that i've done already they they weren't even released in the cinema in the uk and they were either popular on home video yeah. or something else and a lot of the films like dirty dancing you'd struggle to even get that released in say somewhere like china yeah i think you're of right the story and I definitely think some of the other films of the 80s and i've got a list on my laptop of possible films for the podcast the list i think the last count was over 400 yeah i'll never do them but a lot of those just no never gonna happen <laughs> Even this <laughs> spinal tap. I'm I'm trying to think of a film. I've not seen it yet, and I should. The Greatest Showman. Mm. I'm trying to think of films that will have an an enduring legacy. Yeah. And I think that might. But it's films again going further back, like The Sound of Music, further further back. Yeah. That where you have the sing along editions of the Prince Charles. Yeah. Loads of 80, 80s films have that, and I I can't see, I can't see the Marvel universe. Then, I'm not having a downer on the Marvel Universe. <laughs> I've not seen the latest one. I will go yeah. and see it. But um, it's it's all about, these days, it's all about remaking, yeah. you know, 80s classics or just doing, you know, part two, part three, part four, or just reworking things we've all seen before. I don't know. I don't know. I, I miss the I miss the individuality that, of, of people who were just... Were just somehow they managed to get loads of money for a crazy idea and that yeah. just won't would, wouldn't happen these days no. I did read a book where they were talking about the difference between in the 80s there were a lot of films that were made for what would be mid budget whereas now it's very much either your tentpole film so an Avengers or Star Wars yes. make hundreds of millions yeah. Or which fund the very small films, okay. but there's nothing in between. There's nothing in between, no. so maybe that's maybe that's what I'm thinking of. It's those yeah. those middle ground films. Yeah, it's a shame. I mean, I, I love a good Star Wars film, but um, oh yeah, and I can't yeah. wait for the new Han Solo one. Yeah. But um, I don't know. Yeah, but maybe in thirty years we'll come back to that and uh, you never know. Yeah, see the impact it's made Absolutely. on the then. Absolutely. <laughs> um, well, Claire, thank you very much for joining us for the podcast. Um, no, it's a pleasure. I'm kind of thinking. Hopefully, we've covered everything. Oh, I mean, I think so. I'm, I'm sure people listening now would have would have seen it, but if not, again, it's one of those films you can watch over and over again, and yeah. you will see different things. Um, and funnily enough, a band that you talked about earlier when talking 80s films, uh, the number one song in the UK when this was released yes. in 1984, it was The Reflex by Duran Duran. <sighs> Quality tune, which yeah. I, I play often on my Friday night show, so I yeah. will mention that. <laughs> And we'll get a little taster on the podcast, but uh, if you want to hear it in full and you don't want to pay for it on iTunes, uh, go to the Absolute Radio website and request it that way. Absolutely. Good idea. I can play it for you on a Sunday night. What a oh, brilliant lovely. idea. Yeah. <laughs> brilliant. Well, Claire, thank you very much. And, no, it's uh, a pleasure. Yeah. And uh, we'll leave you with your answer.
This podcast is part of Britpod Scene, an independent network of uniquely British podcasts that's always growing. Check out BritpodScene.com or BritpodScene on Twitter to find out more.